Hello. Love Talk Radio. Like I was saying, this is the Hellbender Book Show on the BookSpeak Network, and I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romines. Uh, a little about me, I'm an author from Kentucky. I'm a medical doctor. I graduated from the University of Louisville School of Medicine in 2017. My debut uh, horror novel, The Keeper of the Crows, appeared on the preliminary ballot of the 2015 Bram Stoker Awards. Um, I've written uh, six other books, seven now, actually. We just had our, our latest book drop this week. Um, in horror, science fiction, fantasy, murder mystery, western, and thriller. Um, They're all available for purchase on Amazon and ebook and paperback. Uh, The most recent release is The Blood of Kings. That is a 400-page fantasy novel. It's the second book in the Warden of Fail series. Really excited about that. But on this show, um, the Hellbender Book Show, I'm reviewing horror novels and interviewing authors. I'm joined by some of my friends and co-hosts. Um, this afternoon, I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Mills. Uh, Joe, why don't you introduce yourself for all the new listeners in the audience? Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joe Mills. I'm a resident of Louisville, Kentucky, and an all-around nerd and fan of horror. I read a lot for fun, and I've also listened to a metric ton of unabridged audiobooks from a wide range of literary genres. I'm honestly very thrilled to be here today with my friend, Kyle, and looking forward to interviewing our guest today. So let's get started. Uh, I would like to introduce uh, this afternoon's guest, Stephen Paul. Uh, is it Sawyers or Sayers? How do you pronounce your name? It's it's Sayers. Stephen Paul Sayers. Sayers. I like that. And he Stephen is the author of A Taker of Morrows and The Soul Dweller, which are the first two installments in his Caretaker series. Um, Joe, would you read uh, Stephen's bio for our listeners? Certainly. Stephen Paul Sayers is a college professor and international best-selling author of supernatural thriller and horror fiction. His debut novel, A Taker of Morrows, was published by Hydra Publications in June 2018, followed by the second book in the Caretaker series, The Soul Dweller, in November 2018. His short fiction has appeared in Unfading Daydream and Well-Versed. As a research scientist, Stephen yields to the left-brain world of data analysis and statistics by day, but releases the demons in his slightly twisted right brain by night. It gets stranger on dusk when neither side is fully in control. He makes his home in Columbia, uh, Missouri, and Plymouth, Massachusetts, not far from the Cape Cod locations, he writes about in the Caretaker novel. Throughout his journey, he has accumulated five guitars, four herniated discs, three academic degrees, two dogs, and one wife, son, and daughter, but not in that order. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cal. Great to be here. We've now we've heard about your bio, but why don't you tell our audience about yourself, just as a not necessarily as an author, but as a person, in your own words. All right. Uh, you know, I'm a I'm a transplanted New Englander uh, who's who's really found a home out here in the Midwest. I, I I grew up on Cape Cod and spent my first 35 years out there before finding an academic position at the University of Missouri. Um, got into writing a little later in life than most, I have to say, but I'm making up for lost time. As, as Joe mentioned, I have two novels published in 2018, uh, a third coming out this summer, and hopefully many more on the way. Oh, wow. That's great. Um, <laughs> why don't you tell us a little more about your background in scientific research? 
Yeah, uh, it's it's funny. I actually didn't start out in science. I was actually a philosophy major in college, which simply means you have no idea what you want to do in life. Um, but I eventually went back to school to study sports medicine and ended up getting my my master's in exercise physiology and my doctorate in exercise biochemistry. And I, I started my research career studying muscle injury. Um, but then as I got older, I sort of shifted into geriatric research. And now I study uh, age-related changes in muscle and how to keep people strong and healthy as they get older. Well, for our listeners out there, physiology and biochemistry are two of the hardest classes that I took in medical school. So I can tell you, you must be brilliant, Stephen. <laughs> you, know, uh, so, you know, I always say getting a, getting a PhD is like, a, it's like running a marathon. You don't have to be intelligent. You just have to stick with it. So that's, that's right. kind of the, the volume of, of material. Just, yeah, it's just sticking with it. And, uh, yeah, so I actually end up, I, I do teach biochemistry and physiology at the University of Missouri. So that's kind of where it ended up. Wow, those two classes, that just sent a shiver down my spine. I'm just remembering <laughs> first year of medical school, my going through my physiology notes. Oh, the cardio section almost killed me. But anyway, oh, yeah. Um, it's inter- you mentioned you were a philosophy major back in your college days, and I'm curious um, because my cousin, Jacob Bromines, we've had him on the show. He loves philosophy, and he's written a collection of, of short stories, something other is the title. Um, but his, his stories are all filled with like existential dread and um, wow. existentialism, that kind of thing. Did, did that, does that, did that influence your stories at all? You know, I, I don't think so. I think philosophy was, you know, I, I kind of joked that it was, you know, it means you don't know what you want to do in life, but it actually, it, it, it helps you think in a certain way. And I, I did get a lot of value out of being a philosophy major from the, from the side of actually learning how to think a little bit, but I don't think that really, I don't know if that really enters into the, the writing other than the type of horror I write is a lot of afterlife, a lot of um, thoughts about what's going to happen maybe when we die. And the stories are kind of around that. So I think philosophy in a way is sort of this exploration that I've, I started a long time ago that I'm still exploring now as a horror writer. Well, I can tell talking to you, you're a deep thinker. Um, You mentioned when we were first talking that you got started reading, you got started writing later in life. Tell me about how you got started and interested in fiction. Yeah, I, uh, I never really, you know, I never set out to be a writer. Um, I, I was always a, an avid reader, but I, but never thought I had the, you know, the sort of the training or the pedigree to write something of my own. I was, I was sort of stuck in that, I don't know, that stay in your lane mentality, you know, that, that I'm a scientist, I'm supposed to do research, I'm not really supposed to write. But then my daughter, Kaylee, uh, she threw me a, a challenge. She's, she's an amazing writer who basically had a full-length novel under her belt at age 18. And she's still working on it, and, and we're working on it together. Um, but she, a long time ago, a few years ago, I was reading parts of it, and I was just amazed at how good it was. And I was telling her, you know, people just don't do this. This is really good. Um, and she said, well, you know, you should try it someday. And I kind of laughed and thought, you know, that's just a kid saying something. They don't, they don't know. I'm not supposed to write. I'm a scientist. But I decided at that point I was going to write her a book. I was going to write, you know, probably a terrible book. I was going to get it bound. And then I'd give it to her, you know, for a holiday or her birthday. And that would be the end of it. But when I started writing, I, I really got into it. And I, 
I wanted the book to be good. So I started studying the craft of writing. I, I went to writing conferences and workshops. And then this, this switch sort of turned on inside me and really ignited this passion that I didn't know I had. So the short answer is my daughter got me interested in writing fiction. And the cool thing about it is, is that it's created this bond between us. And, you know, we have this shared thing that we do together. We talk about story ideas. We read each other's work. And she even gave me this great idea for my first novel, A Taker of Morals, that became a key to the series, in my opinion. So it's really been great. Wow. You said so many things I want to unpack there. Um, so first of all, you talked about how you learned the craft of writing, how you went to the writing conferences, how you mastered, you taught yourself this skill. And that goes back to yeah. something that I, I work with new authors all the time, um, whether it's because I do a lot of speaking events and things of that nature. And I, I, sometimes I meet people and they're interested in writing and they send me emails and I tell everyone yeah. writing's not, it's not just, so, I mean, some people are gifted, but it's a you can learn just like with any muscle. I mean, you have a background in physiology and exercise science. If you want to train yourself to run a marathon or to perform some athletic feat, you have to build. You have to train. Writing's the same way. When I started, my first book was terrible. Um, it will never see the light of day. It took me four <laughs> finished books by the time I was comfortable enough to get published. And just every time you, every time you do it, you get better at it. Um, but I also wanted to mention um, how really how neat it was that you were in, that your daughter inspired you to write. I don't know if you are you familiar with the, the passage by Justin Cronin. Yeah, a little. Yes, I am. They recently adapted it into a television show, but I, I read the book when it was first released, and that story came about because he wanted to tell a story for his daughter where a, mm -hmm. a little girl is, who, who saves the world. Um, and right. so I think it's great that you and your daughter have that relationship. And I, I really hope you encourage her in her writing and, and, and help her um, when it comes time for publication. I wrote my first book when I was 18. Um, it was, I was 26 before I was finally published. Um, yeah. But I, I, I met a, I go to the Kentucky, uh, the an annual Kentucky book fair every year and this year I met a, a young lady named Lauren Hudson, and I believe that she was uh, 19 or 18. Uh, she's in college, and her, uh, she had published two books, uh, and her father also inspired her. And it was really neat um, just to see the passion she had for writing at such a young age and what a bright future she has. So definitely want to encourage yeah. Kaylee uh, with her future oh, projects. Absolutely. She's uh, she's on the verge of of, of de deciding where she wants to go to college and and you know I'm I just keep saying to her you know just keep writing you're gonna be doing a lot of things but when you're downtime you just keep writing keep writing sending it to me we'll go back and forth we'll be you know editor and and you know writer and we'll do that and yeah we we have a great relationship with that and and oh yeah it'll be a it'll be a lifelong thing and you know she's she's always my kind of first line of. I guess my sounding board when I have an idea, I'm like, Kaylee, what do you think of this? And she's just, you know, it's amazing to have this. We're, 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 so, we're so different in age and yet we think the same and it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to share with a, a child. Um, so yeah. And she's not a child I and mean, she's now a young adult. And, and I, I, I see that, you know, moving forward throughout our whole life doing this stuff. So, so yeah, I encourage her and she encourages me. Well, you don't just sound like a great writer. You sound like a great dad, too. Um, 
What what interests you. you about the horror genre specifically? Oh, that's well, that's hard to pinpoint. I you know ever since I was a kid, uh, I loved horror. I, I think I think I, re- I really loved being frightened, but in kind of a safe sort of way. Um, one of the one of the first novels I stumbled upon when I was a kid was was a book called The Rats by James Herbert. Um, and it was about these oversized rats that invaded London, and they were huge. They were like dogs. And I remember the graphic descriptions of people, you know, being eaten alive or having their eyes eaten out of their head. And I remember the feeling I had when I read it, and it just it just captured me. And at the same time, my brother and I were also like watching a ton of really bad '70s horror films, like The Manitou or It's Alive. Some of those Christopher Lee Hammer vampire films. I mean. In a way, the '70s were, you know, like a, a garbage heap of of horror horror films, but also kind of the golden age of horror because there was The Exorcist and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and we watched all of those and we really got into it. And it's also a time where I discovered Stephen King, and I read just about everything he wrote. And it, it's funny, 40 years later, I, I still take my kids to horror films and I still read Stephen King. So I'm not sure if I've matured like I, I should have by now, but. Uh, that's, you know, it's just, it's one of those things, I think it's one of the first influences and it just stayed with me. That's the only way I can describe that. So I like to write about it. I like to try to, you know, try my hand at that because that's the only thing that came out when I put pen to paper is, is this kind of stuff. Well, you're, how did you get involved with your publisher, Hydro Publications? Yeah, um, when I... When I was shopping a taker of Moros, and this was a, a long, t- you know, once we got it, you know, in, in perfect shape, and that took a long time, but um, I, I researched a number of small publishers that specialized in horror and thrillers. Um, Hydra Publications just seemed to c- kept coming up, and I liked their author list. I, I liked their variety of fits in. I especially liked their book covers. You know, they, they kind of grabbed me, and um, – so I decided I was going to, you know, query them and see, see what they thought. And the interesting thing is the first query letter I ever sent out to a publisher was Hydra Publications. Now, I followed that with probably 50 others in the next few months. I mean, I just, you know, blanketed the, the landscape with queries. And, you know, even after getting a number of publishing offers from other houses, I ended up signing with Hydra. So I, I guess I could have saved a bunch of time and just, you know, not even sent out the others. But I ended up there anyway. Um, but Hydra has just been, they've been great to work with. Um, I, I know you probably know Tony Acri. Um, I, I think he's really making things. Yeah. I think he's making things happen over there. He has so much energy. It just rubs off on you. Um, yes. You, you meet a lot of, you meet a lot of the Hydra authors at the book shows and conventions. And we continually share, you know, marketing strategies. We read each other's work. We, you know, we feature each other in newsletters um, you know, that kind of thing. Rob Hoff, for example, he, you know, he was on your show a few weeks ago. He suggested I get in touch with you and now here I am on your show. So, you know, we look out for each other and help each other. Um, and I feel like I'm, I'm really with the right publisher at the right time in my writing journey. So I, I feel really fortunate to be with Hydra. That's great. Yeah, I had the, I always enjoy running into Tony at events. Um, you just talk about somebody with obvious enthusiasm and passion for oh, yeah. you, for their writers, for their own books. Um, Tony, you know, I always have a great time with Tony. I was going to say, no, you, you go ahead and finish your story about Tony. Yeah, I was the first time I met Tony was at in, 
conjunction in Indianapolis. And I was, he was selling books and I was sort of, you know, behind the table, a little nervous my first time. And man, he just got me out in the, out in the aisle, stopping people. And it's like, I learned how to sell books, you know, standing next to Tony. So it was, it was really, that was kind of my first introduction to him, uh, you know, face to face. And it really was, it was a great one. So. Well, Joe, you've been awfully quiet. Um, why don't you read the disc- why don't I, know, I can tell you're plotting something. He's up to something. Uh, for those of you, if you don't know, uh, I might not have mentioned this already, but Joe is an audio uh, narrator. And so, Joe, would you read the description? Would you read the book summary for Stephen's first novel, A Taker of Morrows? Uh, certainly. R.G. Granville has his whole life in front of him but only about 24 hours to live it. Beyond life's boundaries, an enduring battle between good and evil determines the fate of earthly souls. Here, caretakers guard and protect against the evil, and vengeful jumpers who slip back and forth between worlds to prey upon the living. For one man, news of his impending demise sets off a deadly chain of events, fueled by a jumper's burning vengeance. Now he's in a race against time to stop an unrelenting evil unleashed upon the earth, and if he's to protect his family and the world, the tenuous boundary between life and death to confront a killer, and a shocking secret from his long buried past. Spine-tingling supernatural suspense from his new voice in horror, Stephen Paul Sayers, a page-turner in every sense of the word, from the Fallmouth Enterprise. Wow. Stephen, why don't you tell us about the book in your own words? Okay, yeah, it's about a it's about a guy who finds out the world isn't exactly what he thought it was. It's it's a battleground between the forces of good and evil from the afterlife, um, a place where these caretakers protect earthly souls and these jumpers hunt them as prey. And now he's become the prey. And in in trying to save his own life, he sets forth this chain of events that could mean the end of humanity. So a taker Morris is a, is a fast paced supernatural thriller I, I say supernatural thriller i know that's under the umbrella of horror there's uh but i have to i have to kind of leave it towards supernatural thriller it has lots of actions uh, action and suspense it's, it has some elements of traditional horror in it uh and it has a nice little twist at the end well speaking as someone who also has um some supernatural thrillers uh, i've always found that the books, because thriller is a bigger genre um, with more readers than than straight traditional horror, I've always found that my books that are labeled under supernatural thriller or thriller uh, tend to sell better than uh, books that are labeled just horror or under a horror subgenre. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, and I'm I'm starting to expand in that. I I feel like it's you know there's. It, it, you know, I always think of horror as an umbrella term, and there's a lot of stuff underneath it, like you know, paranormal and supernatural. So I kind of I kind of go with the horror genre, but I I also see you know when I'm trying to do marketing and things like that, when you when you're under thriller, you've got just huge amounts of readers. So we may, I may be kind of moving in that direction too. But either way, it's it's the story doesn't change. You know, it's 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 about this you know these caretakers and jumpers and kind of how the how the afterlife kind of bleeds into our world and how we deal with that. Very nice. Now, where is the book available for purchase and how much does it cost? 
Um, Tigger Moros, as well as the, the second book in the series, I think we'll talk about that, The Soul Dweller. Uh, they're both available in paperback uh, on Amazon. They can be ordered through any you know, brick-and-mortar Barnes & Noble store for $14.99. Um, e-books are available on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, Kobo, Apple, iBooks. Uh, there may be a few others. Uh, sales price for those are $3.99. The easiest option may be to go to my website, which is www.stephenpaulsayers.com. Uh, there are links to Amazon and places to order the book directly. And I think Tony Acre let me know recently that they're kind of auditioning some people for the audio book. Uh, so that will be around at some point, but I don't have a date on that. Very exciting. I can't wait for that. Audio books tend to do really well because there's not, there aren't as many. Um, I think it's like hundreds of thousands in the Audible store compared to millions and millions yeah, in the uh, e-book right. and paperback world. So I, I'm excited for you to branch out into the world of audio. Uh, yeah, I was I'm, going I'm, to ask it, it where the idea. Good. I was going to ask where the idea for the story came from, but I think you already mentioned that your daughter Kaylee uh, helped you come up with the idea. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, she she didn't help me so much with the idea. I had some stories. You know, I, for some reason, I've had some things kind of rattling around in my head. She was the impetus to actually get me to start putting, you know, taking them out of my head. Um, you know, I, I think for this particular series and this this book in particular, Taker of Morals, and it, and the whole Caretaker series, I've I've always been kind of fascinated fascinated with the idea of what happens when we die. And there's the philosophy background maybe there somewhere. Um, and this story is, is really, again, about the afterlife and how it kind of interacts with our own world. So I got to thinking, you know, what if certain souls could slip back and forth between this world and the next to keep us safe and protected, kind of like a guardian angel, but a little bit more, a little bit more power. And, and that thought kind of comforts me that maybe someone might be watching out for us. And I, and I wanted to explore that in the writing. But as a horror writer, I had to sort of include the flip side of the coin and that there may be darker souls out there trying to harm us too. So that's what creates a nice little, uh, you know, conflict in the story. We have people protecting us and we've got people who are trying to get us too. Joe, I've got to get you in here. Do you have any questions for Steven <laughs> so far? No, um, not just yet. Honestly, I've been very interested in, in not only seeing, you know, talking about, or hearing about how he got into it, also how uh, his daughter has heavily influenced it. So I, I tell you what, I will say um, I do have a question for him. Do you personally do you find the idea of an afterlife daunting? Is there something about that that uh, gives you pause or concern, not just from a a writing perspective, or is there maybe something that you're pulling from on on a personal level? Do you think that influences your books here? Well, I would have to say. I mean, I have to. I would have to think that most most people I know, you know, think about the ultimate questions. Um, I know when my, my father passed uh, not almost 10 years ago, the thought of thinking that maybe he's out there kind of watching out for what I do kind of um, gave me the idea that I could create this idea of caretakers maybe there's someone there's a assigned person you know in the afterlife that kind of watches out for you um and that's sort of where the, i think where the story came from um 
But I think we all think about these questions and to write about it, I think is cathartic in that you get to, you get to put it out on paper and you get to think about things and create stories around it. um, Which to me is, is very therapeutic. Now, Joe, have you selected your excerpt from a taker of Mars? Yeah, actually, I've uh, gone through quite a few bits, and I, I think the best uh, out of everything I've read, I think the best intro for an excerpt would still be chapter one. The the, the beginning it. is a was a wonderful hook. Okay, chapter oh, one. Oh, good. RG. You wonder sometimes about a face, someone passing you on the street, in the subway or airport, a face you've never laid eyes on before and will likely never see again. So many different ones with welcoming eyes, maybe an an intimidating scowl, or a false smile, a distracted glance, a courteous nod, a lustful once-over. A face can communicate some things, but not everything. No face reveals the true world lurking behind it. It hides things no one could ever see. No one but Robert Granville, that is, R.G., could see it all. The thoughts of unsuspecting strangers scream through their well-constructed facades and into R.G.'s mind like blinding sleet in a winter storm. Their truths? Well, you don't look like shit today, honey. Their sins? You still have time to hide the body where no one will ever find it. Their pleas for help? Don't let him track me down again. Don't let him find me here, please, God. Who would have guessed looking into R.G.'s face? that he sheltered some of the darkest secrets of the universe behind his brown eyes and kind smile. Secrets nobody could possibly fathom. I've got to say, that's a wonderful hook for chapter one. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's interesting. That I think is, I think that's the soul dweller. I think that's book two. And that's sort of introducing him uh, again to a new audience and kind of some of the things that, um, that he has the power to do. I think that really sets up for, you know, allowing him to do these things and, and, and preparing the audience for knowing, I mean, he's got some power, he's got some things he can see. Well, even if we, uh, even if we step away from the moment of the whole life and death, like, cause this is the, you said the soldier, this is the second book, right? The the yeah. idea of telepathy by its that's that's a whole book by itself. The the idea of being able to truly hear other people's thoughts and I, I think that's another spot where maybe the uh, the philosophy background would come in handy because I don't know about you all, but personally, I wouldn't want telepathy. I wouldn't want to be able to hear other people's thoughts. I don't think I'd be able to function if if I did. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. I, I, there are pieces when he first got this power, and, and it kind of comes around in the, in the first book where he gets this power. Uh, he, he saw, it was sort of like this overwhelming, you know, like being in an airport with all the TVs on, all these people passing you by and seeing all these thoughts flying from people's minds and like, you know, almost putting your hands around your head and just make it stop. Um, and, and finally, he, you know, he, he learns how to, how to just kind of – everything becomes kind of white noise. Everything kind of is there, but it becomes this white noise that he doesn't really pay attention to unless he has to. So it's sort of, there was this learning curve to actually having this power. So yeah, the thought of that, like seeing, you know, seeing the thoughts flying at him and and that would be, that would be overwhelming. I don't think you could, you couldn't have any kind of normal life if you knew what everyone was thinking all the time. 
there are also moral implications there, I think, where if, uh, if you heard someone talking about the idea of uh, thoughts of, you know, being able to hide the body, would you be morally <laughs> obligated to do something about it? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I think, you know, there's, there's that, but I feel like I didn't explore that so much in the books because it's almost like the levels of where they were going with these, these, you know, vengeful killers from the afterlife that was that even took precedence you know over these kind of worldly problems um, but yeah that's a really interesting question well while we've got you joe we want to read some of the reviews for steven's first book a taker of morrows why don't you Certainly. go ahead and narrate some? all right first one up is from marion from kentucky uh, she gives you five out of five stars for a taker of morrows a gripping read, intelligent, multi-layered writing. A combination murder mystery and supernatural tale with a selfless hero and heroine facing an unstoppable villain. Hang in there through the first two chapters that set up the unique story premise and introduce a long list of secondary characters. You will be rewarded with a fast-paced, can't-put-it-down, thrill-ride-to-the-finish experience. And I think that speaks volumes by itself. Um, got another one from Tina L., also giving you a five out of five stars. Breathtaking enlightenment. Enticing from the very first page. With RG only having 24 hours to live, put the bucket list into, into, into a short-ordered perspective. First and foremost, his wife and unborn child. It tells what a wonderful and selfless person RG is. His good outweighing the could be bad. This book awakens part of the unknown spiritual world in a whole new way especially since it's not directly religious. I fell in love with how the inner turmoil roller coaster was worded and love of the characters. I've been impatiently waiting for the next book in the series. Thank you, Mr. Sayers, for an awesome read. I look forward to starting my hard copy collection of this series. Yeah, I, wow. you know, I've been really like pleased. I, yeah, I, I've been pleased with, you know, how the book's been received, you know, so far. It's been it's been well-reviewed on Amazon and Goodreads and by bloggers, newspaper articles. I, I've really been uh, I, I surprised, really. <laughs> I, mean, I really was surprised that people have liked it so much. So that's a, it's just very encouraging. Have you done any TV for it, any local television or radio? No, no, I haven't. I've done um, – I did the blurb. You know, I did some, some podcast, YouTube kind of stuff, but I haven't done local TV. I would, I, I, um, I would, I, I think it would might be worth your time to reach out um, to a, any local. I don't know where you live. You said you live, you spend time in Missouri. I'm from Kentucky, and I reached mm-hmm. out to one of the local stations still in in a slightly rural area in Bowling Green, and uh, I was able to go on twice, um, and that opened up a lot of doors for me. Um, oh, okay. So it might be something to something to look into reaching out and letting them know you're an author. Um, it, it's evident talking to you that you're very personable you're very eloquent and articulate i bet they would love there'd be a local news channel that would love to have you on for some segment um where you could come on and bring your books um in and talk about them i remember i got an invitation to a book club right after i did one and i showed up and i guess it was because i'm young uh, or youngish i suppose uh they thought i was there to the i showed up at this big house it was like a mansion in the middle of nowhere and there were all these cars and catered food, and so I guess the the lady who was running it thought that I was 
with the caterers, and so she she let them pick <laughs> pick up that food and, and and carry it into the house. So so without That's missing so a beat, I picked up the tray and I walked into the house, and then she was like, "When is the author going to get here?" Like, and I'm like, "Oh, that's me. Uh, yeah, that's me." <laughs> it was such a funny moment. You know, it's funny. I I, in, I live in Columbia, Missouri, and it, there's really, um, I mean, it's just like a hotbed of authors. I know, I know, um, uh, you know, Louisville and other places, Kentucky places. You know, Tony Acre tells me about. It. There's so many authors down there. We're in like a little hotbed too, and we have the, you know this Unbound Book Festival, and we have lots of local authors. And I, I guess I haven't reached out so much because I felt like, well, you know. I've got to wait in line, you know, I should be in the back of the line, you know, being kind of the new author, but I, I think you're right. I got to reach out and start doing more of that. I I can just see you up on television right now. Uh, listening to you talk, you'd be a natural at it. And it's, it's so fun. My first time I was a little nervous. I don't know if either of you have ever seen the Will Ferrell movie, Talladega Nights, where he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Uh, but going back, it just felt, it felt much more natural. Um, so before we start talking about Stephen's new book, um, I would like to go ahead and remind everyone who's listening um, for our live audience that this is the Hellbender Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, um, Kyle Alexander Romine, the author of Keeper of the Crows. I'm joined by my co-host, Joe Mills, uh, an audio narrator. Our guest this afternoon is... Stephen Paul Sayers, the author of A Taker of Morrows and The Soul Dweller. And with that in mind, it's time to play our intro. So I actually was supposed to play that. I was supposed to play that at the beginning of the show, but halfway through is a good time to. Why don't we um, move on? Joe, will you read the description for The Soul Dweller? Certainly. A battle between good and evil rages across otherworldly dimensions. Caretakers protect earthly souls. Jumpers hunt them as prey. R.G. and Casey Granville have made it their life mission the malevolent spirit they're facing. A deadly jumper plucking children from their homes, taking them back in time to a hidden corner of the past, adding them to his collection. In a heart-stopping trek across time, the team must risk it all and jump 70 years into the past to rescue the innocent, and hope their mission isn't a one-way ticket into history. And if they're to save the children, they must halt an unspeakable evil that will stop at nothing to protect its precious souls. The second installment in the Caretaker series, The Soul Dweller brings every child's nightmare to life and puts a face to that monster in the closet. See, he got smart with the second one. He's, uh, he's focusing on the children's nightmares, and honestly, I think those are uh, that's always a creative hotbed of ideas because quite as scary as you know what, what children can uh, think up whenever they're scared at night in bed and trying to go to sleep and trying to think, what's in the closet? I wanted to talk to you about – I wanted to talk the, – the three of us to talk about that, but I, I just realized I I had added – Stephen had asked me to include the tag for this story, and I forgot to send it to you, Joe, so I'll read it. Um, the tag for the Soul Dweller is, an ancient evil has returned, and it comes for the children. And I, I love that. So 
segue, dun, dun, the perfect dun, segue. Yeah. The the first um the first book sounds amazing, but when I read the description for this, I was like, I have to read this book. I mean, it sounds this the description alone. Um, it sounds like a great book, and it's a great description. Um, and I was hoping that we could kind of talk about this. Um, Joe alluded to it. Uh, horror stories about monsters or entities that target children. I've always found them personally very effective. I, I'm thinking about um, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, uh, Sinister, um, It, uh, just as some of the more recent yeah. movies. Um, and that's just off the top of my head. I've always thought that it's because um, personally, it, it's hard. I'm an adult now, and so it's hard to watch a scary movie and be scared um, myself. But you can make me scared for the characters. If I like a character and I don't want something bad to happen to them, that's a way. Um, that's effect, that's an effective way to get me into a horror movie now, um, as an adult. And so that's why a lot of like the teen slasher movies I don't really care for because a lot of times it's a bunch of punk kids out in the woods that I like it doesn't really matter to me what happens. Yeah, but exactly. Joe and Stephen, um, why why do you think it is that um, horror stories involving children? Maybe it's an innocence thing, um, but, but both this question's for both of you. Why do you think that those types of horror stories are so effective? Stephen, do you want to yeah, tackle well, this one first? Yeah, I just, you know, I think, I think, I mean, you know, children's vulnerability creates that urgency. You know, there's, there's, there's always an underlying tension when they're in danger. And I think that's really good for drama. You know, it's, it, it, like you said, with teenagers and slasher films and cabins in the woods and things like that, you almost don't care, <laughs> you know, what's, what's going to happen. You know, they deserve what they're going to get. You know, kids don't, don't deserve it. You know, they're in these vulnerable positions. And, for a book to kind of focus on that in, in this, in my book, this kind of this vengeful spirit, you know, from the afterlife, it's actually, it's a child who died 70 years ago, but didn't get enough of life. So it kind of jumped back into the world and started to befriend these children and kind of feels a little bit that he can't really be a child. So he starts to abduct them back in, back to his, you know, across dimensions and across time to where he lives. Um, and, you know, that's a, throughout the whole story, there are these children that are, that have vanished and there's just this, you get a glimpse of kind of where they are and there's a tension that's set up that we got to get, we got to get to these kids. So I think that's a good, a good point for drama. I, I like also when writers will use that to, um, to present a child who's who has a lot of ingenuity and courage. And I think about Stephen King books. You mentioned it. That's one of them. But oftentimes the children prove to be more intelligent and intuitive than the adults. So, you know, they're not just these passive characters. So while you create the tension, you can also use them as these heroes. And I think that's a really – I try to play that theme a little bit in The Soul Dweller where we have vulnerable children, but we also have those that kind of show a lot of ingenuity and courage. Um, yeah, I, I think it's the vulnerability that just creates that tension. Yes. I um, And, Joe, I want to get your thoughts on this too, but I wanted to mention that the third book in my Keeper of the Crow series and books two and three hopefully will be published this year. Um, we've started cover art, um, but just my publisher has a, a backlog with the editing. 
Um, so once we get that through, I'm hoping they'll both be out by the end of the year, but we'll, we'll see. It's um, It follows a group of teenage, having with me having just said that, it follows a group of teenagers out in the woods. Um, and, but they, I, <laughs> I try to, I try to flip, I try to flip the convention on its head. So I start off. Yeah, that's what you have to these, do. These, in, instead of being uh, five punk kids, um, even though they match the age, they are all deeply broken and flawed people that have gone through traumatic experiences and they're highly intelligent and they, um, I'll spoil it. I'll, I'll spoil it for people listening. So if you're listening at home, you might want to mute it for the next uh, 30 <laughs> seconds or so. Um, I instead, in most of my horror stories, almost everyone dies. It's like something that I'm known for. Like I kill characters right and left. Um, my readers either love it or hate it. But in this one, the kids all win. Um, I mean, they are pitted against the most overwhelming odds of any. Um, of any horror story that I've written, the deck is like completely stacked against them and they all find a way to win and they all live. Mm. So it's like, it's a complete reversal of what you expect. So I, um, the, my beta readers that have read that book, they're like, this is one of the best things you've ever done. And, uh, but I, Joe, having, having said that, Joe, why do you think, um, that these stories about the targeting of children are so effective? Uh, I would have to agree with Steven mostly. And I think it's kind of like a, essentially like an attack on innocence, maybe like these kids, they haven't done anything wrong. You know, like we don't mind the, uh, the most of the slasher movies. Cause most of the time it's kids who are just, they're just, they're, they're being teenagers and they're, you know, reckless, they're wild. They blah, blah, blah. They kind of end up, most viewers kind of feel like they kind of earn it in some cases, mm. but with little kids, like they haven't, they haven't done anything wrong. And I will say um, a specific example, it wasn't even anything, any of the big movies that most people are familiar with. There was an episode of the TV show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I never thought that there would be anything that I would sympathize or empathize with in that show on this level. There's an episode where there were kids in the hospital and they all had fevers. And this thing was like sucking the life out of them. And, like, they were, you know, these blood-curdling screams right before they died. And you saw the creature, and you just felt for the kids. Because, like, not only could they not fight back because they're kids, but also they're, like, really sick to boot. And, uh, you know, that I really I really felt for the kids. And I think that's what drew me yeah. in. Like, if it had been, like, older adults or something like that, I would have been like, man, whatever. They had, they had like, you know, most of a life to live. No. No, little kids, man. So... I think that's part of the reason I really enjoy series where, uh, you know, kind of like it or whatever, where the kids are like a little bit more intelligent than you would initially yeah. think. And they actually have the ability to fight back. Like I can, I can get behind them. I can, I can sympathize with them and cheer them on as a reader and go, yes, I re- I want you to succeed. I want to see where the story goes. Cause I, you know, I'm hoping against hope that you make it out. Well, I think that that's a great thought, Joe. Um, do you have another excerpt that you would that you wanted to read? Unfortunately, I don't have one from the Soul Dweller. I'll tell you what, though. Let me ask Stephen: Is there is there a bit from your second book? Is there something that you would want me or want me to read for your uh, for the listeners, or a specific bit that you think would would uh, be well introduced right right at this moment? You know, I I don't have a you know that first 
that first section that you read was really good. I have an excerpt, though, that I was just looking at. Do you, do you want me to read it? I don't know what page it's on. I just have it on a piece of paper. Let's do it. Uh, Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> Stephen Paul Sayers narrating his own book, The Soul Dweller. Thank you, Kyle. Here we go. Mike Stahl inched the Crown Vic down Main Street and sat him, his eyes fixed on the road with his mind a thousand miles away. He couldn't get that boy's face out of his, out of his mind, a face as innocent as his own stepson's, his future guillotined in the most violent, brutal way, not even an animal deserved. In his deepest anguish, Mike envisioned a softer, less frightening ending for the lively youngster forced to his death. He prayed his heart ceased and released his soul before his body ever broke against the pallet of rocks bearing the water's powerful surges. An early summer invasion of tourists and workday commuters clogged the roadway, usually brought Stahl's blood pressure spiraling, but today it didn't register. Funny how tragedy deemed mon- the mundane inconsequential. But the murderer, Stennett, consumed his thoughts. What affliction turns a man's heart to cold and brittle hate? After last night's discovery, he may not want to know. Mike's thoughts drifted back to the previous night when he'd heard Stennett finally confess to the senseless murder. He'd flown from the claustrophobic room and nicotine stench to assemble another team for the crime scene investigation awaiting for them on Queen Anne Road. He had moved through Stennett's pitch-dark, cape-style home with Detective Chris Daniels beside him. The recent heat and humidity had amplified the decaying theaters sifting through the living room floorboards from the cellar. As they descended the creaky wooden basement steps, small light halos from their flashlights pierced the dark and danced off the floors and walls, reflecting the blizzard of dust particles suspended midair and a cloud of buzzing flies. Training their lights upward, they found what they had come for. The horrific images Stahl had conjured in his head from Stennett's revelation bore little resemblance to the one before his disbelieving eyes. Maria Stennett's nude body dangled from the ceiling. A jump rope, duct tape, and garden hose tethered her arms and legs to the ceiling joists, sagging limbs reinforced with a nail gun. Her body slumped downward in places not secured with either, her head and stomach protruding at impossible angles, gravity and time exerting their effects. Her face wore a mask of pain and terror, left eye still open, mouth frozen in an eternal scream. Wow. (laughs) A little long, but I apologize. No, that's great. No, no, I don't know. I don't know about you, Kyle, but I, I can get behind that. Wow. Yeah, I'm glad <laughs> it's light outside right now. I'm glad the sun's still up. <laughs> Joe, will you read some reviews from the Soul Dweller? Absolutely. Uh, this review is from Jeremy Bates. The Soul Dweller has everything you'd want in a riveting supernatural horror story. Crisp writing, engaging characters and a brazenly refreshing plot pitting, pitting good against evil that will keep you turning pages late into the night. Lee Mountford says, A terrifying tale of demonic possession that is perfectly paced and will have you hooked, one you do not want to miss. And then Darcy Coates says, The soul dweller grips you from the first chapter and refuses to let until the heart-stopping end. And um, just in that little excerpt that he read, I can... I can definitely see where they're coming from. I'm going to have to finish both of these books now. I have to do it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's you know the, you pick the best parts of the book, but no, that's uh, those are those are fun scenes, and it's great to write that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I, I know as as writers, we all kind of 
get into the scene and enjoy, you know, creating something that's going to make people's, you know, hearts beat a little faster. So hopefully I, I, I accomplished that. I wanted to add that these aren't just regular individuals that are leaving these reviews. Um, oh, the that's three, true. That's um, true. Jer- Jeremy Bates uh, and Lee Montford and Darcy Coates, they're all Jeremy Bates, the USA Today best-selling author. Uh, Lee Mont- Montford is a best-selling author, uh, and so is and Darcy Coates is, as well. Um, how did you get these uh, some of these bestsellers to leave reviews for you? Well, I um, I got in touch with uh, or I, I got in touch with Jeremy Bates uh, a while ago because I was a fan of his work, and, and we kind of got in touch and going back and forth, and I sent him my books to read and he was interested and, and later on I asked him for a quote. The other two, I, I, I kind of Lee Mountford and Darcy Coates. I, I had liked their stuff. And so I reached out and, and uh, asked if they'd read my stuff and, and, and give me a quote. They agreed to it. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's great because I totally was, and this is again, talking about the, the community of writers, you know, people really are interested in your work and they want to read it and they want to, you know, they want to give quotes when they like the work. So uh, I'm always appreciative of that. Well, great. Now tell us about the setting of your books. I think you mentioned earlier in your bio, it's related to Cape Cod. Yeah. Yeah. My books are, they're set in Boston and Cape Cod, mostly Cape Cod. Um, It's a place I I grew up. I, I always looked, you know, when I was a kid, I always looked for books that were set on the Cape, but, they were mostly like the literary fiction type, you know, some girl spends her summer at the Cape and meets some boy, you know, that, that's not what I wanted. I was, I was looking for, you know, Cape Cod thrillers and horror, but but I didn't really find any. And so I kind of set out to write what I wanted, you know, when I was a kid and never found. Um, the, The fun thing about writing this series has been, has been using the actual Cape Cod settings as part of the stories. Um, One example, I have this, um, there's a restaurant on Cape Cod called the Pancake Man. It used to be a chain of breakfast places on the Cape when I was a kid. There's only one left now. Um, so I sort of honored it by making it the portal through which one of my main characters, Casey Granville, can access the next world. Um, and she uses that in both, you know, a taker of morals and the soul dweller. So it's an actual place. It's described exactly where it is. And um, I've actually thought about going down there and saying, hey, <laughs> to the owners, you know, i got to – I got a couple books that talk about the Pancake Man. You know, can we do a little uh, cross advertising or something like that? So that that's kind of fun. Um, there's for the, in the in the Soul Dweller, I use a site, um, a cemetery that's called Burial Hill, and Burial Hill is one of the oldest cemeteries in the country. It's a place where the actual Mayflower pilgrims are buried. You know, so in, in the Soul Dweller, I use these actual epitaphs from the Burial Hill grave markers to direct the plot of the story. It actually leads characters to a certain discovery. So it's been really cool to, you know, that's a place I'm very familiar with. So even using, you know, street names and, and businesses that are, that are along the strip in these little towns, um, it feels very personal. And a lot of the people that, that read the books from the Cape, from Cape Cod have, you know, comment on that and, and really enjoy that. You mentioned earlier that the third book is coming out at the end of this year, I believe. Tell us about the, your future plans for the series. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm currently working on the third book. Um, as usual, I'm, uh, I have no title. <laughs> I, I, titles always come like at the last minute for me. I, I don't really, I'm not very good at those. Um, but it's the third book in a series. I'm kind of debating whether, you know, whether I'm going to close out that series or leave it open uh, and keep going. I, I know some series tend to get a little stale, you know, after three or four books. Um, and then there's a lot of people who do, you know, 10, 11, 12, 15 book series. Um, so I want to make sure I do this one right. I've had, I've had a lot of feedback from readers about some of the, the secondary characters in the novel. Um, the, the excerpt I read was of a, a detective named Mike Stahl. He's kind of a, a secondary character, but people really like him. So I think there's potential for kind of a spin-off series, which might be an option. It might freshen it up a little bit if I want to go that direction. Um, you know, and I also have other ideas for standalone novels um, that, I'm, that I want to get out. And it's hard to kind of get to those when you're in the middle of a series because it's hard to write two books at the same time. Um, so I don't know. I don't know where we're going to go with, with that. I really like the series. I like the um, how I've set it up where there's, you know, the afterlife and how these people can kind of move back and forth and there's threats from the afterlife. There's a lot of books that can come from that. So I want to make sure I do it right and make sure it's it's fresh and and good. So uh, we'll we'll see three three books definitely. We'll see where it goes from there. Well, you mentioned titles, difficulty with titles at the end. That that is me. I mean, you and I are the same that way. <laughs> I my the western uh, that my publisher put out. I started when I first started that book was called The Writer. Then I changed it to The Man with the Silver Pistols. Then I changed the title to Salvation. And then at the end, it was changed to Atonement. So that went through like four permutations of titles. I have like yeah. four different covers. Like it's the same cover with a different title. Yeah, when I was, I, I was, with, a, my, I was with a very small agency at, at one point, And my agent eventually became my editor. Um, and she's fantastic. But we were, when we were with the agency, she, they were very adamant about never using a title that has ever been used before. So when I first, when I was writing a taker of morals, I had it as jumper. That was my kind of working title. And of course they're, they're like, there are a couple books and there's a film that was called jumper. So that was out. So I had to come up with this, you know, title for this book. And we were so desperate at the end, we were ready to, we were ready to shop this book and we had no title. So um, my editor at the time or my agent at the time (laughs) used one of these, you know, title generators, you know, they have these online title generators that you can type in some, some pieces of the book names and things. And it'll, it'll, you know, you press the horror key and it'll, it'll flip out a horror title. And so we were so desperate. Yeah. There, you can find these. And, we tried it, and of course, like the first ten of them were just these mishmash of words that made no sense. And then, the last one was a taker of moros, and it was like, wow! It just hit me because the title is actually kind of it has a dual meaning to it. Um, you know, moro is the old English word for tomorrow, so a taker of moros would be someone who's you know stealing tomorrows. But there's also a character named Moro, who's the who's the caretaker of my protagonist. So. You know, this entity who could be a taker of Moros, he would be taking Moros, you know, charge or his protectee. So it like it worked on two levels and it was like, OK, we got our title. <laughs> so we did use the, 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 the title generator to create it. 
That's awesome. Um, is there any, so your first book was released in, uh, 2018. What has it been like for you being a new, being a published author and uh, what have you learned? I think, I think it's fun being a published author. I, you know, I've had the opportunity to do, you know, book signings and readings at local bookstores. I, you know, I've had articles published about the books and newspapers and magazines. Um, interesting story, a, a, a babysitter I used to have when I was eight years old on Cape Cod saw one of the newspaper articles there about the soul dwelling. She reaches out to me on social media and we had this laugh, you know, reminiscing about Cape Cod in the late seventies. I mean, it's so strange to have that kind of reach. Um, and it's to hear from readers who, who love the work and, and can't wait to read your next book. I mean, that's a real cool thing. I mean, who would have thought now what, what I've learned is that, man, it's a, it's a real team effort to sell books. And you, you've got to do a lot of work on your own and with your publisher. You know, Hydra is great, and they support authors at, at book fairs and conventions, and they, they've sponsored, you know, BookBub and AMS ads, and they're always keeping the cover out in front of people's eyes. Um, but, you know, I've had to learn a lot about marketing, you know, Instagram and Facebook ads and keeping a, a strong social media presence it's fun, but it's definitely a lot of work. So I've learned that it's it's a real it's a challenge, and it, it takes consistent effort, you know, aside from your full time job to to sell books. Well, let me just encourage you as you have more books that come out, um, there'll be more. The, those are also more entry points for other people to find you and your work. So sometimes there becomes a tipping point. I know that there. There has been for me to a degree, as I've had more books come out, it gets easier for people to find the other books. And when people read some books, then they'll buy, they'll buy the old right. ones. And so I have to do less time on marketing than I did. I still do a fair amount myself, but not as much as I used to have to 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 build an audience in the beginning. Um, yeah, let me and ask you. Yeah, and that's where. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, tell us about, in the time we have left, we're starting to run out of time, tell us about your short fiction and the free stuff available on your website and where listeners can go to find out more about you. Yeah, um, I, I like writing short fiction. I, I, I think it's, um, it's really useful, when you're, especially when you're writing a novel and you're kind of stuck or you're feeling a little bit like you need something else. Um, short fiction really keeps me writing and it allows my mind to wander a bit. And then I can come back to the novel with a fresh set of eyes. So, you know, I've got a few examples of my short fiction on my website. Um, you can go to www.stephenpaulsayers.com. That's Stephen with a P-H, Paul Sayers, S-A-Y-E-R-S. You can read stuff online, download them. There's a couple I like. I just, I'll just give a short little synopsis. I have, I have one story called The Promise. Um, story about a guy who finds his peace, um, by facing the ghosts of his past after his wife's death, he has to fulfill a promise to her and goes back to the beach where he grew up. Um, but he runs into a 12 year old boy who looks awfully familiar. And I'll leave it at that for that one. The cell is another one. It's about a man who's struggling after the death of his mother. And in the months after her death, he calls her cell phone just to hear her voice, you know, to keep her alive in his head. But he sort of gets the shock of his life when she actually answers and then keeps calling wow. back. So those are two. Those are a lot of fun. I, I kind of like those ones. Um, you can find me. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But probably the first place to start is my website. And, again, com. 
it has links to you know all my social media there. There's lots of stuff to keep you entertained. Um, there's free short stories I just mentioned, a blog of my top ten horror films of all time, I de- a detailed review of each. I got reviews of books I'm I'm currently reading. Links to A Taker of Morals and The Soul Dweller on Amazon, newspaper stories and articles, YouTube videos, podcasts, all that kind of stuff to keep you busy for a while. And, and also there's, you know, obviously, if you like the content, there's a newsletter you can sign up for. Um, I can keep you up to date on sales and discounts, new releases. I do featured authors in my newsletters that, are, that aren't me, that are other people I'm reading uh, to promote their work. Um, so check it out. We will. So in the time we have left, Joe, do you have a mystery question to ask Steve? I do. And uh, let's hope we have enough time to to get a good answer out of this one. So, Stephen, if you found out beyond question that a lot of your family and friends had essentially been replaced by clones or pod people, knowing you know what you know about thriller and horror tropes, uh, would you raise any red flags or would you just kind of play it by ear? That's a great question. Uh, I think I would try to adopt the pod people mentality so they might think I was one of them. Mm. You know, I think, I think, I think, you know, slipping through under the radar is the best way to survive these things. Okay. Kind of play so the you game. You wouldn't go run screaming the to the government. <laughs> no, I think that's the worst. That's the worst decision you can make. Okay. You don't, you don't last long. You don't last long when you do those things. It's all about survival. Okay. All about making it through. I like his well, answer. I think we're Good out answer. of time. I think we're <laughs> out of time. Stephen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, please reach out when your third book comes out, and we I would love to have you back. You're such a. It's obvious talking to you. You're a great guy. Um, anything we can do to help you with your books. Um, but this has been the Hellbender Radio Show with our guest Stephen Paul Sayers, the uh, author of. A Taker of Morrows, and The Soul Dweller. I'm Kyle Alexander Romans, your host and the author of The Keeper of the Crows. I was joined by my co-host, audio narrating legend Joe Mills. Uh, to all of our listeners, have a good one. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.